Hey everybody and welcome to the Disciple Makers Podcast brought to you by Discipleship.org. This is your host, Dave Stovall. Today is the last track session from Disciple First given at last year's forum. We've got Craig Etheridge and Glenn Underhill talking about pouring into leaders that will pour into other leaders and how to help the people you're discipling and even yourself avoid the pitfalls of becoming that superstar leader that eventually crashes and burns from carrying all the weight yourself. These track sessions have been especially helpful to me as a worship leader at my church and a leader of about 30 people on my team. So if this is your first one, I encourage you to skip back a few episodes and start with episode 23 to get caught up on what Disciple First had to share. All right, let's hear from Craig and Glenn from Disciple First one more time. Enjoy the episode. Well, welcome back. Uh, It's the last session. You've almost done it. Almost crossed the tape. Uh, Several of you guys have been with us through the duration, so appreciate you doing that. And um, what we're going to do today is just uh, focus on one more element of uh, developing leaders. As I've said earlier, um, our goal is to produce disciple-making leaders, not just superstar leaders, and we talked about that in the first session. In the second session, we said basically the way that this we develop disciple-making leaders is we have to have a, a, a disciple-making pathway, and we also have to have a clear leadership pipeline, and that these actually work together. You know, for years we only focused on the pathway, which is uh, if you're going to do one before the other, I would start with the pathway. You know, really clarifying this. Uh, because if you don't have that, then you just have a pipeline. You're just going to shoot people up the pipeline, but have not been fully developed. And what you end up with are people that are in leadership, but they've never really discipled or understand disciple making, don't know how to lead by example in that way, and won't lead the church to think multiplication minded because they don't multiply their own heart, or their own lives. And so uh, this is the problem that we've been in in the past. So We've got to have this pathway, and then you have your pipeline. And then the goal here, very simply, is just that you don't elevate someone in leadership until you move them down the pathway. As they move down, then they can elevate up as they go. And so what you end up at the highest levels are leaders that are truly disciple-making leaders. These are leaders that multiply. These are leaders that will lead the church to multiply, to plant churches, to grow church, uh, to uh, develop leaders within and without. And so this is really what we're shooting for. So you don't, rule is you don't raise somebody up in leadership until you move them down the pathway, okay? Now, what we did was we said, okay, let's look at the life of Jesus. How did Jesus develop uh, leaders of self, leaders of teams, leaders of leaders, leaders of departments, and leaders of organization? And really, you can, if you track that with where this comes down in the pathway, then you can find out what did Jesus teach here, and how does that impact this level of leadership. And so this has been just kind of a new way of looking at the life of Christ and been incredibly helpful for us. And so in the last session, I just showed you how did Jesus train here to develop team leaders? And we and one of the things that we noticed, just big picture from last session, right before lunch, is that Jesus focused a lot on the heart issues. You know, vision and seeing God at work and developing spiritually and servant heartedness. All these things are issues of the heart. Now, I think it's fascinating that Jesus doesn't get right to skill, but he cultivates heart early on. 
What would it look like if all of your team leads were being cultivated in their heart in these areas? Don't you think that would make a difference uh, as to how they lead? And don't you think that would make a difference as they emerge into higher levels of leadership, that that's the foundation? So it's just fascinating. Jesus is the master leader, the master disciple maker. He's the master builder. And so he's laying this heart foundation early on. Okay. Um, you're going to find out in the leaders of leaders section that Jesus is going to deal with a lot of skills and, and handwork. So heart hand, he's going to deal with a lot of those issues, which we're not talking about in this session. Um, but then when you get to the departmental leader level, you're getting down into the last elements of Jesus' training, and he's going to deal a lot with how we think. And uh, so that's what I want to talk about today. I was on a board for about 12 years of a local hospital. And um, every time we had a board meeting, we had the white coats that would come in, the docs. We had a few docs in there. Then we had all the departmental leaders from every department in the hospital would come in, the CEOs and the COO and all those people were in there. And they were required to give reports. And you would see on the screen how they were doing with their metrics and if they were behind or ahead. And there was, I mean, those were, um, how would I say it? They were um, highly charged at times, uh, full body contact uh, type of meetings. And I never, never ceased to walk away from those meetings with just this sense of, wow, these people really are, I mean, they're, they mean this. They're getting after this. They're doing is, they're such good work, hard work, to really improve the hospital. And... Um, Really, those same departmental leaders are the ones that are going to uh, impact your church. When I talk about a departmental leader now, I'm talking about somebody that runs a whole department, like a student ministry, worship ministry, and so on. Departmental leaders serve a critical role in the success of the organization. They're the ones that set the pace. These departmental leaders' primary purpose is to lead an entire department of the church toward growth and success giving direction to all leaders of leaders, team leaders, and volunteers in their particular area. And because of this, this departmental leader person really wields a tremendous amount of influence church-wide. And the worship leader, student pastor, uh, kids pastor, they're going to have tremendous influence throughout the whole uh, organization. These are usually highly skilled pastors, that are, it could be full-time, could be part-time, of course, depending on uh, the size of the church and how many de- departments that they have. But what I want to share with you a little bit before we dive into the lessons of Jesus are what I call the seven deadly sins of a departmental leader. Okay, so uh, just, just out of curiosity, so I know my audience here, how many of you in this room are senior pastors? Okay, good. How many of you are departmental leaders? Okay, great. All right. That, that just kind of, we're almost evened up here. So these are seven deadly sins of a departmental leader. Um, there's a lot riding on their success, and, but there are some things that can derail them. Okay, so let me just give it to you pretty quickly. They're pretty obvious here. Number one is leading from skill and not spiritual maturity. Uh, again, a departmental leader can easily fall into, hey, I know how to do this. 
This is my job. I'm good at this. I've been trained for this. And um, they depend on their skill for growth and not their own spiritual maturity. Many rising stars become falling stars because they've never been personally discipled. They're not um, able to grasp and cultivate the, the disciplines of the faith. And as a result of that, they just heart begins to shrivel. I mean, they're good at what they do, but they are they're like a sinkhole, you know, underneath the, the spiritual uh, fervor is eroding. And this this can happen to any of us, right? Any any of us can begin to rely on our abilities and not in prayer to to really work hard at our job, but not really work hard at cultivating a deep walk with God. Um, and again, this is why we say. You don't want to elevate somebody to that level without them moving down here because you want to be sure that they have the skills and the training necessary as a disciple of Jesus, regardless of what they do for their job, uh, to walk with the Lord. And so this is super important. This is why I think Paul warns us, the Apostle Paul warns us not to quickly lay hands on new believers. That What he's saying is don't elevate them until they've gone down. You know, this is the very warning that he's giving. Don't do this rapidly just because you need somebody in that role or just because they look really great on a resume or they've done a great job somewhere else. I think that's the real danger, right? They're so good over here. We got to get them over here. But what about their walk with God? Where are they at spiritually? So that's one danger, leading from skill, not spiritual maturity. Number two, acting like a leader of leaders. And what I meant by that is that this leader of leaders is really coordinating these team leads and the work down below. Uh, but the, a departmental leader should do more than just that, more than just coordinating. This departmental leader is responsible for the whole department. Uh, their purpose is to solve problems, to care for and develop the team leads underneath them. This departmental leader requires them to think at a higher level thinking about the health of the ministry as a whole and not just uh, one individual or, or team. And so um, there, a lot of times departmental leaders will sink down and start doing this role. And I think it's because this role of kind of coordinating these team leads, um, you get a lot of, you got to look, get a lot of perks for that. You know, I'm, I'm the one in there taking care of that. I'm the one that's fixing this problem. Everybody needs me and I'm really needed. You know what I'm kind of saying? And they don't want to give that away to somebody else because, well, that, that's kind of what I do and that's how I get the strokes back. But you need to elevate up and allow people to come in and coordinate under you so that department leader can think more strategically about the future and leading the organization as a whole. And so that's just really uh, just uh, fodder for, for thought. Uh, how do we help? I, I tell you what, in our, in our situation... I have to constantly be encouraging our departmental leaders to think, think higher and let create more space for people to come underneath you to have more places to play. Uh, don't just sit on that and just not allow anybody else to come in. You can give some of that away. You can delegate that. It's still under your responsibility, but you can create more levels and opportunities for others to play. Um, number three, not being a team player. I know this would never happen in your church, but uh, not being a team player, uh, many times uh, departmentals can become so transfixed on their department that they forget that they're part of a church. 
<laughs> right? And uh, so I was so fixated, well, my, I've got to have it. But what about everybody else? You know, and you can't just go make this decision because that affects all these other people. And, and there's a whole budget we got to deal with. And there are other constraints that we all, and just the idea of kind of being focused in on only their department can actually cause problems and can cause conflict. I mean, some departmental leaders can wreak havoc on a team because they're pushing only their thing without consideration for other people. And I think it's important to say that departmental leaders have to realize they are both on a team and leading a team. They're both on a team and leading a team. So you're on the team of all the team of departmental leaders. And that's your first loyalty is to the team you're on. And then once you're in coordination with the team you're on, then you can lead the team that you're leading. Right? And it's not the other way around. It's not your loyalty to your team, and these are the guy, the team that you're on, are all of a sudden the enemies that you're competing with for whatever decision you're trying to make. And so I think that's really important. That's a that's a real danger many times for departmental leaders that we have to clarify and remind them over and over and over again. Number four, failure to build and manage a strong team. Uh, sometimes it, uh, if a department leader is not able to build and manage their team, it can create a lot of chaos and a lot of problems. Um, in my opinion, the ability to build and, and manage a strong team often comes down to insecurity or a lack of discernment. You know, either I, a lack of discernment, like I pulled people on my team that have no business being there. I didn't really think this through. I didn't really get other people to take a look at this person before I brought them on. And now I'm kind of stuck with somebody that is either underperforming or even worse, uh, character problems or so on. So a lack of discernment there or insecurity. Like I'm just afraid I want them to like me. And if I, if if I confront them on this situation, they're not going to like me. I'm going to be a bad guy. So I really don't want to do that. So I'm just not going to manage. I'm going to have difficult conversations. I'm not going to address th- things that happen because of that. And so that insecurity often fosters um, a team that can, that can turn toxic. Departmental leaders have to have both the security and discernment to build and lead uh, their teams. Uh, number five, uh, mismanagement of resources. This is probably pretty obvious, but uh, the visual leaders um, have to think about uh, how they manage their resources. And I'm, I'm talking about financial resources. I'm talking about uh, volunteer resources. I'm talking about facility resources. I'm talking about uh, calendar and all that kind of stuff, right? You've got to be able to manage those things uh, in conjunction with everyone else in, in the team. An overspent budget, a failure to follow up on a potential volunteer, errors in serving meeting uh, area errors in reserving meeting space, uh, missed deadlines due to poor use of time. All these are things that make a ministry frustrating and can undercut a leader's credibility. So that's number five. Number six is a lack of initiative. When the executive pastor, when I was a young, young, uh, young guy in ministry, this guy was uh, much older and, he used to say that um, when he was a young departmental leader, he would just walk fast everywhere he went. He just walked fast. 
He said, I just walk fast over to this office. I walk fast over there on Sundays. I would just walk from room to room really, really fast. And he said, as I walk fast, people would look at me and go, wow, look how fast he's walking. He's working really hard. Give him a raise. Right? And then he said, if you walk slow, then people look at you and go, well, you're not walking. You're walking slow. You're probably not getting anything done. Why are we paying you so much? Right? And he said, the trick is to walk fast. You know? <laughs> really? You know? Oh, I'll never forget him telling me that. But, but, it kind of comes down to this idea of initiative, right? I mean, I'm not asking, are, you, are, you, are they walking fast? But do they have a sense of drive and initiative? Are they really leaning into doing things that are new, taking risks, feeling free to take risks? Um, you know, that's really important. Um, and sometimes when ministry grinds to a halt because of a lack of initiative, it can pull the whole church down. Their whole department can suffer. And it's like, which part of your body do you want to suffer? Well, you don't want any of your body to suffer. And it hurts everybody uh, when they do. Ministries can come to a grinding halt. Now, there's sometimes uh, a, a department leader may uh, lose um, initiative, you know, maybe personal problems, uh, maybe physical problems, maybe marriage problems can cause that, or maybe they're discouraged and they're just kind of burned out in ministry, or maybe um, maybe they don't feel empowered to try new things. They feel like if, if I fail, then I'm gonna get I'm gonna get hammered, and so they just play it safe. You know, whatever the case, it's important for a senior leader to identify the cause of lack of initiative and to seek to restore it as best as they can. So lack of initiative, number seven, a confusion on calling, a confusion on calling. Um, sometimes a person will even get to a departmental leader level and still struggle with the call to ministry. Am I even supposed to be in ministry at all? Uh, we had a guy on our team, everybody loved this guy. Man, he was just super upbeat, charismatic, had a kind of a cool vibe to him. He had hair, and I always appreciate people with hair. And uh, he, he was young, and just his dress was really hip, and everybody liked him, and he was talented. He could sing, he could speak, he could, uh, you know, he's just, he was a super guy. Everybody was like, oh, man, he's going to be fantastic. And he was fantastic for about eight months. And then he came to his supervisor and said, I'm going to go work at Chick-fil-A. We're like, whoa, um, I, what about call the ministry? He goes, well, you know, I don't even know if I was really called the ministry or not. He said, you know, I, 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 every time I, I did something in the church, not to this church, but in the prior, you know, and I would do really well. And people go, man, you should be a ministry. You should be a ministry. You should be a ministry. And he said, but I think maybe I was never really called to ministry at all. It just made me think that, you know, sometimes people can emerge up, you know, if they've not moved down the disciple-making pathway and they kind of shot up the pipeline because they were charismatic and had ability that they could bypass this whole thing of, am I really called to ministry? Even when it's hard, even when things are difficult, do I really have a clear calling? Uh, Here are a couple of things to think about with a genuine calling. I would call this a a test, fivefold test. One, is there a strong, unabated desire to serve God in vocational ministry? I think that is one that, that 
I would look at 1 Timothy 3.1. Second, is there a gifting of the Holy Spirit that other people can see in you? Ephesians 4.11-13. Uh, Third, is there confirmation of your call by others who know you well in the church? You see this in Acts 16 when Timothy was put forward as a, as a one that Paul should take with him because they'd seen him and they knew him and he had a good reputation within the church. Uh, number four, is there a clear inner call of Jesus to serve him in this way? John 21, 15. It was there a sense that I really feel like this, Jesus has spoken to me and, and, and called me. And then lastly, is there a conviction that not to follow this call would be to disobey Christ? Acts 26, 19. Ministry leaders who are confused about their call will like the conviction to lead and the endurance to stay when things are difficult. So all of these are what I call these seven deadly sins of a uh, departmental leader. And uh, honestly, all these, if you're, if you're investing in departmental leaders, you've got you to keep your pulse on all these things because any of those could, could happen uh, in, in their heart and in their mind. And this, this is what keeps uh, people that are overseeing departmental leaders busy and, and up at night. It's just trying to help them uh, grow in, in all of these particular areas. So here's a question. Well, what did Jesus do? How did, how did Jesus develop his guys at this level? And so, again, we're going to look at this departmental leader, and I'm taking it down to now late in the, the pathway. What did Jesus do down in here that helped develop his leaders that were uh, about to emerge into leading the whole organization? Right? They were about, he was about to be resurrected, and it was on them. How did he develop them? And as we said earlier, Jesus developed their heart, the heart of ministry here, skills for ministry here. But really, he develops the mind of a leader in these latter stages. Are you thinking rightly? Are you thinking like Christ? Uh, that's where he really focuses on. And I think this is super fascinating. So let me, let me give you about, um, about four things here very quickly. Let me give you about, um, about four things here very quickly uh, of the, what Jesus trained these guys. Again, this is like the last nine months of his ministry. He's really pouring into them now. And the first thing that he, he deals with is their motive. Their motive for ministry. Are, are you guys familiar with Patrick Lencioni? Uh, he writes a lot of leadership stuff. He has a book called The Motive. I highly recommend it. It's a great book. But basically, what he, he, he draws a distinction between two leaders. Uh, one leader emerges to the top corner office of the company after long years of sweat, blood, and tears. And he sees his seat in that, in that, that office, at that level of the company. He's gone up the pipeline as a reward for all the things that he's done. I mean, I've worked hard. You don't know how many years I put in sales and how many years I put in this. And I finally have gotten to the place that was owed me because I worked hard and this is my reward. 
He's not really going to try to take the company anywhere new. He's certainly not going to take any risks because he's worked really hard for to enjoy the benefits of this level in the organization. He said there's another guy, and he also works his way up to the company. He gets to the corner office, but he doesn't see his place in the organization as a reward, but as a greater responsibility. He's like, oh my gosh, you know, now everybody's depending on me. You know, I've got to be in the game. Whatever it takes, I've got to sacrifice whatever. And I'm, I may even take, need to take the kids for the organization to really do what it needs to do. And he sees it as a grave responsibility. And um, I remember when uh, I first became a, a lead pastor and uh, my parents came to visit uh, my, and see my new office. And they were like, oh, they're excited. They were from Alistair, they would come see their office. So I showed them this new office and there was some little plaque that had pastor that somebody had given me and I stuck it over. No, 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 no. There was, a, it was the office desk and there was a chair. That's what it was. And, um, and it, it was, you know, it wasn't that fancy chair, but it was, it was a chair. It was a leather chair. I guess I never, I always sat in metal chairs. So, you know, a leather chair was an upgrade. And my mom goes, oh, there it is, the chair of the pastor, you know. And I said, yeah, there's a heavy load on that chair. And I never knew that. There is a heavy load. And, and that kind of goes back to this idea of responsibility. And so what Jesus is really working with his guys on is what is your motive for why you do what you do? And we see this in Caesarea Philippi when Jesus asked them the question, uh, this is in Matthew 16. Who do people say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know the story. And then he says, whoever wants to come after me must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9, 23. Later on, he said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for me will, will save it. What good is it if somebody gains a whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of when he comes into his glory and the glory of his Father and his holy angels. And from this point on, Jesus begins to fixate on the cross. Luke 9, 51, Jesus starts to think about suffering and self-denial and sacrifice. Some of the most difficult words of Jesus are found in these passages, in this section of Scripture if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, yes, even his own life, he's not. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That's Luke 14. What's he saying? He was calling for a complete devotion, even to the point of sacrifice. And I think this is really important here when you think about the department of leaders. When you are leading at that level, it is no longer about your personal advancement. This is about your sacrifice for the kingdom. You're doing this for Jesus. And, and that's going to require some sacrifice on your part and taking up a cross and following him. And that, that this, is a, a, this calls for sober judgment, Right? And to see this as not, well, I didn't get what I wanted or I deserved more or I should have had X, Y, Z. No, whoa, 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 let's back up here. What happened to taking up your cross and following Jesus? So let's think 
a little bit about what Jesus really expects of you as you lead at the highest level of your church. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves our own dreams, our own wants, even the control of our own life, and to yield completely to Him. The self-denying is not a one act, but rather a means by which we find intimacy with Jesus and surrender completely to Him. Do you get that? It's almost in that surrender and sacrifice that we, we surrender completely to who Jesus is. Even when times are hard. And we don't just run or put our jumper to the portal or post our resume on somewhere else when things are difficult. But we're willing to stay the course as good shepherds. So I think motive is a big issue that Jesus deals with here. And it's something that we need to really talk through our department leaders about is, is the motive for why we do what we do. Uh, secondly, is servant leadership. Of course, this is... Uh, Jesus talks about greatness and what true greatness is. Gosh, this is so good. Uh, earlier on, uh, before uh, the upper room, earlier on in Mark 9... Uh, they were always debating about who was going to be great. They came to Capernaum, it says in Mark 9, 33. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept silent because on the way, they had argued about who was going to be the greatest. And sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be last and the servant of all. He's like, okay, guys, true greatness is not about who's on top. Who's got the most? Who got the bonus? You know, who, who got the most recognition? Who gets the most preaching time? It's not about that. True greatness is inverted from that. And you think they'd have got it. But they didn't get it. On the way up from Jericho to Jerusalem. This is on his final ascent into Jer- Jerusalem. Before he's going to give his life, they're arguing. Well, let me just read it for you. A dispute rose among them as to which was considered the greatest. And Jesus said, the kings uh, and of Gentiles lord over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you must should be the youngest, uh, youngest and the one who rules um, like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves. You are those who stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you the kingdom just as the Father conferred on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's Luke 22, 24 through 30. Notice how Jesus can contrast. You know, this is what pagans think about leadership. This is what I think I'm not one sitting at the table. I'm the one serving. And of course, he's going to wash their feet, right? Uh, just shortly thereafter. Ken Blanchard, uh, in his book, states, uh, quote, as you consider the heart of issues of leadership, a primary question is you have to ask yourself is, am I a servant leader or a self-serving leader? It's a penetrating question. Self-serving leader feels entitled to certain positions and promotions. A self-serving leader is quickly offended and not invited into a decision. A self-serving leader needs to be recognized and publicly rewarded. A self-serving leader quickly leaves when things are difficult. So 
Jesus is really leaning here in this, in this level of leadership. Of what's your motive? And are you embracing truly being a servant leader? Then thirdly, Jesus talks about forgiveness. And it's interesting here that Jesus deals with this. You know, a leader must be able to endure hardship and forgive those who hurt them. I don't expect an amen, but just a little, just a little inner nod. A leader must be able to endure hardship and forgive those who hurt them. Why is that? Because unforgiveness will derail a ministry quicker than anything I know. How many leaders do you know? Don't respond to this question. That are bitter. They're angry. Something happened on a church staff and it's been eight years and they're still thinking about it. How they were mistreated, what they did to him, what that pastor said, or, or how that board did me wrong, or whatever the case may be, right? Unforgiveness is a cancer that grows with every passing month and consumes its host. Unforgiveness is toxic waste that corrupts everything it touches. Unforgiveness is unwelcome guest that takes over the space in your heart and mind. And it's interesting that Jesus gives a little tutorial at this stage on forgiveness right on the heels of talking about conflict within the body. He talks about dealing with conflict and then right after that, he talks about forgiveness. I tell you, you know, he said to Peter, not seven times, but 77 times. So Peter, basically, Peter, Jesus is telling Peter that forgiveness is limitless. Forgiveness is required. And then, of course, he launched into a story about a servant who was forgiven a great debt, but then would not forgive others a great debt. And I, I think that, man, this is so important for departmental leaders to understand that, hey, um, you're not going to go through ministry without being disappointed and being hurt. And that's because Jesus didn't get through his ministry without that. And Paul didn't get through his ministry without that. And that as we go through and we deal with conflict and we seek to resolve those conflicts, we are going to suffer wounds in the process. Such wounds can only heal washed in the water of forgiveness. And so Jesus really deals with forgiveness here. And I think for departmental leaders, it's so important. And we, we suffer wounds from people we serve. The sheep bite, folks. The sheep bite, right? You know what I'm talking about? Come on. We could tell stories. <laughs> Wolves bite worse. That's true. <laughs> yes. And so, I mean, and then sometimes we get it from other leaders and other pastors, people over us and under us. And, and so we have to yield all these things to the Lord. And at the end of the day, you, you serve Jesus. You serve Jesus. And at times you bear in, in your own body, you know, suffering as he has. And that suffering should drive us more to him, not drive us to bitterness and resentment and anger. So Jesus deals with this stuff. Man, how important this is for leaders at leadership at this level. But let me give you one more. One more. Uh, we talked about motive. We talked about forgiveness. 
We talked about sacrifice and what that means, servant leadership. Let me give you one more. And, and um, this is multiplying the movement. Jesus really focused uh, toward the end on multiplication. Yeah, we're going to have to endure some hardship. Yeah, there are going to be some times we have to practice forgiveness. Yeah, where there's going to be sacrifice along the way and our motive is going to be challenged. It's not about me anymore. But at the end of the day, we do all of that so that we get to be a part of multiplying the movement. And it's not about me building my kingdom, and if I don't like it, then I leave, but it's about me sacrificing myself so that the kingdom can advance through me, and I can be a part of multiplying this movement. In Luke uh, 10, 1, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. And he told them, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. That's not the first time he said that. He said that earlier, right, to the 12. Now he's saying the same thing in the 72. And, and the beautiful thing about this last section here is that Jesus is seeing multiplication happen. He's talking about as a grain of wheat dies and is buried, it produces multiple seeds. He's thinking about his own sacrifice and death and how that will produce and fuel a movement. But he's also seeing it happen. The 12 are multiplied to 72 and the, and the 72 are going out and they're winning people and they're coming back. And in, in Luke 10, 21, it says Jesus was filled with joy. Why was he filled with joy? Because he saw the movement multiplying. One of the only times we find in scripture, Jesus filled with joy is when he sees the movement uh, multiplying. Jesus wanted to instill in the hearts of his leaders the imperative of multiplication. Notice I didn't say the suggestion of multiplication or only the idea of multiplication, but the imperative of multiplication. Multiplication is not optional. It's not something, um, it, it's not something to be celebrated if we get around to it. Multiplica multiplying leaders, multiplying the movement is the only way uh, to please God. Departmental leaders need to keep the main thing the main thing. And that is sharing the gospel, making disciples, and multiplying leaders and the movement. That's what they're called to do. Not squelch it, not contain it, but multiply. And Jesus really nails that home really hard to his leaders in those last uh months of his ministry. You know, when I think about this, there's a lot of challenges that departmental leaders face. Uh, it's difficult work. I mean, it really is. It's, uh, it's, it's hard work. Um, they can, those seven deadly sins can get off track pretty easy. But let's not forget when managing those things, uh, the deeper things of how we think, how we think about our motive, why we're in what we're in, why we do what we do, uh, what is required of us, how we deal with forgiveness, and yet keeping our eyes on the goal of multiplying disciples that multiply disciples and multiplying the kingdom. Because that's where the fruit is. That's where the joy is, right? Jesus was filled with joy when he saw the multiplication. And the real joy in ministry is not how many he had on Easter. The real joy in ministry is the people that you multiplied into and the kingdom advancing. That's what keeps us in so, Glenn, come on up here. You, you lead departmental leaders all the time. Every day. Yeah. Let's pray for you right now. No, no, I'm just saying. <laughs> so, uh, which of these elements that I just talked about kind of stand out to you 
as something you see, maybe even right now, you you need to press in on with with the leaders that you deal with. Yeah. So I was just I was thinking through that in my head. I was taking a few notes even. Um, so for me, the sedly those seven deadly sins that Craig was speaking about. Uh, when I'm meeting with my team, de my departmental leaders, I am checking under the hood on all seven of those areas. And I'm asking very intentional questions. Uh, or as I've been making observation, I'm Sundays, I, I'm, I'm very, I, walk, we, I tell my guys, hey, we're in the people business. We walk slowly. We don't walk fast. We walk <laughs> slow because we, we are in the people business. And part of my job too is on Sundays to be, looking and watching and observing uh, team, my department leaders. But I'm also, do you know what I'm watching more than anything? I'm watching a lot of this. Because if I see some things that need some mid-course correction with this, that means it starts up here with this. So, you know, I'm, I'm constantly, you know, thinking about that. But the other piece is skill over, over spiritual growth. Because, again, the... the, the uh, on that set of seven deadly sins, that 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 first one, I, I we have to constantly go back to. This is not about a performance. This real ministry is born out of the overflow of what God is doing in your own life and journey. You cannot reproduce what you are not. So you know if you're not growing and developing and moving. And becoming a proven multiplier, your ministry is only gonna—it's only gonna go as far as you are. So that—that and—and if—if I'm all about skill, then it, it, I can get into a performance trap real quickly. And then the other piece is motive, um, because this—this—you uh, know, just have to keep in check motives and making sure we've got the right motives and heart behind why we're doing what we're doing. Um, you know, one of the things I talk with my department because we're, we're often asked to do lots of speaking engagements and hey why don't you guys do preaching more or teaching more and come and we virtually turn all of those down we don't hardly ever turn down training opportunities because here's the reason in a room like this of 30 people it's just kind of mentality we try to think through we have 30 people here I'm guessing maybe 15 churches represented in this room. If 15 of if you from 15 different churches go and start to reproduce these things, uh, with uh, and let's just say it's 100 people, that's 3,000 versus it because it's a mindset of of multiplication. Small leads to always leads to big in the sense of in God's economy. So we're moving we're moving this way versus moving this way. So that's what I have, to, and that's that motive piece is, hey, it's not, it's not your size of your department that you lead. Remember why we do what we do. The motive is we want to create a movement of, of multiplication in people's lives and in our ministry settings. So. Good. Questions or thoughts about uh, developing department leaders? Some of you are departmental leaders. Some of you are pastors that are leading uh, departmental leaders, questions about that. Yeah. You touched a little bit on sometimes, uh, even though you want people to like you, you have to face the fact that they're not going to like you after a certain tough conversation. Could you um, dive into a little bit more of like your experience with those tough conversations and how you've learned to navigate them? 
Yeah. Glenn, you want to talk about that? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I'm no, happy no, to. No, I, 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 you know, it, it, cause I, it's because it's a part of what we deal with a lot, you know, right? <laughs> all I mean, the time. Hard conversations, and I think it's a normal part. And so one of the things we try to do culturally is talk about, hey, part of getting better is sometimes us having to have difficult. But again, if there's a, this is why I'm really big on relationship, relational equity. We're talking to our guys all the time about, hey, what kind of deposits are you making relationally into people so that when you have to have a hard conversation, there's, there's, there's a trust and, a, and, a, and, and, and it's hard. It doesn't mean it doesn't always turn out really well. But um, I think uh, when we have hard conversations, I have to remember what is the, the, uh, the intent and what, what is what, the single-mindedness of remembering hey, the reason I'm doing this is because of this. And I know that it, um, I had an, I had one of, this was, I had a guy on my team before, we, we had several, and he'd get really upset. Uh, and, and then he'd walk, and, he'd, and then he'd leave the office and he wouldn't talk to me for days, right? And then by the time he'd, he'd come back around and say, hey, you're right, I just needed some time to process. I uh, needed some time to think through that. Um, thank you for doing that. Um, but again, sometimes you have difficult conversations and people leave churches. Uh, I, I wish I could say that when we have con difficult conversations, people don't leave churches. I just had a difficult conversation and we just had a, a family leave our church. I mean, it, I, I, it's just real. I'm, I'm just being honest. I mean, it's just hard and it weighs and it's heavy and it's hurtful, right? Uh, but... Um, you know, it needed to, it needed to be had, but it was a it was a hard hard conversation, very hard. That's occurring that you still experience. Yeah. Because you think that happens. Because, you know. Yeah, and 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 say let me say this. Sometimes the best thing you can do, like so, I know for some of you, you may not have. You know, we have a fairly large staff, so it may not. You may not be. Maybe more volunteers that you're having your hard conversations with. More in mine tend to be more at leader levels, right? Um, but, you know, I've had to let, I've had to encourage some of those on my team to find new places of ministry. That's um, a nice way to say that. <laughs> and so, uh, that's, it sounds so nice. That's, that's extremely hard because I know the impact that has not only on them, but on their families and on, on, on lots of different things. And I, I, it keeps me up at night at times. I mean, I just, truthfully, it's hard. Being a leader... If being a leader were easy, everybody would, would do it. But I, again, I go back to the, the fundamental of um, at the outset of, man, I want to just, I want to see a movement and multiplication ignited. And I got to just keep that out in front of me. So, yes. I kind of two fascinating questions. I'm a LD, but this is two guys that are a low and LD. So um, if that's outboarding, a lot of what we do with buildings is we bring them on and then onboard them into the process that's going on here. So I guess the two facets would be what can I do as a department leader to help welcome another department leader into this kind of environment where likely that's not been their experience or it's not been their, you know, what's been going on. Hopefully it has been something similar to this or that way. And then two, how can the organizational leader also help? 
Yeah, so that's, those are really good questions. Let me, let me just speak to the onboarding process first. One of the things that we've really tried to work hard at getting better, we've, we found that, that uh, we have less conflict with departmental leaders and other staff if we do a better job of onboarding. Uh, what we found is the poorer onboarding we had, the more conflict we had at the end. And so the onboarding process now for us has been expanded about two or three weeks. Uh, we're, we're saying, hey, we're not ex even expecting you really to do a whole lot of work. We're just onboarding you with a lot of things. And so some of that onboarding uh, even starts before we even make the hire. Even before you make the hire, going, drilling down into this is our philosophy of ministry. These are our behaviors we expect. These are the things we want from you. We have values as a team. I go, the last hire I made, I went through every one of them and I said, now, I'm going to tell you again, this is really how it is here. All right. I'm not just giving you a bunch of stuff that, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is really what we're going to expect. When you get a evaluation, it's going to be on these things. Now, let me go through one by one. And I said, here's the first one. I'll read it off. Own it is the first value we have. Own it. Anybody know what that means? Good. Own it. Bad. Own it. Just own it. Don't. Deflect it. And so I said, here's what not owning it looks like. Here's a guy that, and I give him an example of a pastor. He would always deflect it. Well, my fault. Blah, 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 blah. And then here's, here's someone that did own it. And here's how he did it right. And then I went through every single one of them. Here's what looks poorly. Here's what looks right. And I just went thoroughly through that and said, this is what we expect of you on this team. This is how we operate. And what was interesting is after that was over, I got a text back from him about an hour later, and he said, thank you again for making it very clear. He said, I think this confirms even more I need to be here. So I think just clear, not trying to sell him on the job, but saying this is what we expect of you. And all of us are doing it, so we're not expecting you any more than me, but we're all in this, and this is what we do. I think, and then getting on the onboarding where we're welcoming on, making sure they're building those relationships, that they understand how we operate, why we do what we do, investing in them. They're reading books. Here, here's a list of five books that are important to our culture that you need to read. Here's some sermons you need to listen to. Here's some things that we're going to talk about. This type of onboarding really helps to settle that person in to a rhythm of how we function. Because when you go to someplace new, you don't really know how they do things here. And so you're trying to really, before the hire and even immediately after in that onboarding, uh, do a great job of getting them in a rhythm. And even saying, okay, for the first 90 days or first you know six months, this is all I'm expecting of you because I really want you to develop and get really well acquainted with our team. Even down to, hey, we expect your family to come to church. I know that sounds like a shocker, but I've actually had departmental leaders go, what, you expecting my wife to come to church? Yeah, did I need to put that in the job description? But apparently we did. Uh, so I'm telling you, I'm not making this stuff up. Uh, uh, anyway, I just like, oh, this is how I lost my hair. I just rubbed it and it just came off. Um, anyway, but, but just listing off these expectations, helping them really on board is super important, super important. Um, now with regard to helping another, uh, another department leader, like you're a co-leader with them, I think the best thing to do is just take them out to lunch, man. And just think, welcome them to the team. Hey, if you need, you know, if you're wondering about something, 
You wonder how Glenn handles a situation? Call me and I'll tell you how he does it. You know, or, or you know, what, the lay of the land, or you know, you're dealing with a volunteer, are they, are they okay, are they not okay? You know, man, I'm, I'm here to help you. We welcome you on our team. I wanna walk alongside you. It's gonna be great. We're gonna have a great time together. I think that kind of camaraderie is super important. And it just builds that family uh, culture. Good. Any other? I know we're just about out of time, but any one, one more question? When you give great clarity like that during the onboarding process, particularly when it's still before you made the hire, you find that you have people who self-deselect? They, they, they could. And I haven't had that happen, but I, I would be actually happy if they did. Because we're going to save us all a lot of heartache. Because what we've had is people come on, they go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But they really don't mean yeah. They think I'm not telling them the truth, I guess. I don't know what they, I think they, well, yeah, but that's kind of how everything. But then we really get into how things are going to be. And I'm like, no, this is really how things are. Another thing that we do is that when we're making an apartmental leader hire, uh, I'm not the only. I'm not the only one doing that. We have multiple. All of our senior leader levels are all interviewing them, and they're all saying the same thing. I think that reinforces uh, that this really is how we are. And then we collaborate together and say, "Do you still feel like this is a good fit? You know, do, what about this? What about that?" And it's kind of a collective decision, so that it's not just anyone. Because I'll, I'll admit to you, uh, I'm I'm fairly Pollyannish about things. Oh, he's a great guy. He's awesome. He'll do. Is that true? I'm self-aware. You are very self-aware. I'm self-aware. And I exactly. they know. So I'm like, oh, Jonathan will be awesome. Jonathan's the man. He's going to be so. And Glenn's going, no, he's not going to be the man. He's not. I'm like, yes, he's not. So I'm like, no, he's not. You know. And so I've learned that that's that's how I'm wired. And then I need guys around me that will speak into that. And uh, so that's really helpful. I think that keeps us all moving in the right direction. I'm super blessed to have an incredible uh, leadership team that we work really well together. And um, that's, that's, that's special when you get it, man. When you get it, that's super special. Yeah. As far as your staff uh, that you have, how many of Staff in leadership position in, in with your LD that came through the process through your late member is now part of your staff. It's a great question. Outside, you didn't have to hire from the yeah. outside. Most of them have been with out on the outside. Is there a reason that that model works like that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yes, yes. So let me just tell you again, we're practitioners, so. Uh, we had, we had not really produced the, the people internally that we felt like could get into that level. Um, and so what we have done is we've made some hires that were external because they had certain skills or experience we felt like we needed that were not internally developed. But we're about to change that because what we found is that no matter how much we talk to them about this on the front end, we still are hiring L1s or L2s and trying to bend them to L1s. Because they'll say, oh yeah, yeah no, I did that and I've been that and then you get into it and it's like, it's not really there. Mm -hmm. And um, 
So we are, we are in the process of shifting a strategy on hiring uh, that will involve a residency program that we're trying to attract younger leaders to us as residents and then begin to train them in our philosophy ministry and disciple them younger and just build a pipeline. Even though they may not stay with us initially, they may go off somewhere else. We're going to remember who they are. And then when we have to make uh, calls, uh, if we have to bring somebody from the outside, we, we can go after a group of people that have already been infected with our DNA, our disciple-making DNA. They've already watched them for a year, seen their character, and so on. Um, and then we're also trying to make sure that every department leader has got leaders underneath them that are the next man up, right? And so where we've gotten, though, in problem is uh, the guy, next man up left, and then this guy left, and then we got nobody in the pipeline. We've had those situations before. Like I said, we're practitioners, and so it gets messy. Uh, but we're trying to be sure that every department leader has got people underneath them that are developed and ready to move into those roles when they vacate. And we're also trying to fill a pipeline with young leaders that we've trained with our philosophy that we can draw from. So that's our strategy right now. Ask me in a year how that's going, and I'll let you know. That's because it looks good that 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 you're going up, and then you get to the OD, or higher now. Yeah. So it's like a lot of work. That's right. Works at the bottom. That's right. And so to get to that L1 should be coming. And that's like with Zach. That's what happened. He came from within. But there. Sometimes when you in, in these specialty roles, there there's expertise that you're looking for, and that becomes a challenge. So you got to figure out how to keep that. I, I think it has to be a both and. Just to answer your question. Yeah. You mentioned five books. Oh yeah. Um, five or one of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The cyber leader is one of them. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Jesus Christ, Disciple Maker, Four Chairs are two books. Um, Bold, moves. Bold Moves is another one that, that we've written that's required. It gives, just gives an idea of, of our DNA. What did you call it? Uh, Bold Moves. Um, what's the Henry Cloud book? Uh, Necessary Endings. Necessary Endings. Have y'all ever read Necessary Endings? Yeah. Oh, man. That's so good. And then we do the Four Disciplines of Execution. Yeah, that's right. In the four, 4DX, four disciplines of execution, because we use the term wigs and lead and lags and all that kind of stuff. So that's out of that book. So they, they need to read that so they understand what we're talking about when we do stuff like that. So those are those are on a stack and are onboarding. All right. We're five minutes over. Y'all are super kind to stay with us. Thank you so much. You bet. Thanks for listening to the episode, everybody. I hope that you enjoyed those track sessions from Disciple First. Hope you took lots of notes. One of the quotes that stood out to me was, I think, I'm not sure if it was Craig or Glenn that said it, but they said, rising stars become falling stars because they've never been personally discipled. They can't grasp and cultivate the disciplines of our faith. That just really stood out to me because I had my lead pastor poured into me for two years right out the gate. You know, I was... uh, They were testing me out of the church to see if I was a good fit. And there was a lot in my story that really didn't line up with our church theologically. But our lead pastor took the time to develop me one-on-one, like going to hockey games and going to events together. He discipled me one-on-six in a smaller group that was gender-specific. But then he also discipled me one-on-twelve 
which was the larger group that had mixed genders in there. But he took a lot of time to pour into me because he knew that I was going to be somebody who was pouring into other leaders. There's no way I could have lasted as long as I have in the ministry if he hadn't have set me up for success the way that he did and made himself available even now for times for me to check in and kind of vent to him about what's going on and to learn more from him as I'm continuing on in the ministry. So super important stuff. Episodes like this are super helpful for me and I hope that they were for you as well. We've got more track sessions coming up next. We're leading all the way up to the next forum, which is April 26th and 27th. That's coming up just around the corner. If you haven't already, get your tickets at discipleship.org. It's happening up in Indianapolis this year. All right, y'all. Thanks again for being a listener of this podcast. I hope that you enjoy the rest of your day. See ya.